Good morning. Tom continues his series through the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 6, and I'll be reading verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Heavenly Father, it seems every generation concludes that the devil is more at work than the previous generation, and we feel no different. Father, help us, equip us to stand firm and resist in our day. In Christ's name, amen. We're just doing the first four verses of this extended passage from verse, that's from verse 10 to verse 20, basically. Uh, and, and for starters, this morning, I'm going to show you a, a movie. It's very, very, very short. And then we'll talk about it just a little bit. That's part of a trailer from a uh, documentary that PBS aired in 2013 called The Ghost Army. And it's uh, obviously a true story. Uh, the, the U.S. forces had several deployments of these troops of artists and uh, builders and even, uh, by the way, Bill Blass, the very famous uh, fashion designer, was one of the men who was on one of these crews that would create, they would create the illusion of U.S. deployments of the troops and artillery and tanks. In fact, there was one, one particular deployment during the time of the crossing of the Rhine River right at the end of the war in March of, 20, of 1945, uh, where an, an entire division of German, uh, a German panzer division, a division of tanks, was completely diverted to try to fight one of these battalions of inflatable tanks. Now, there's a reason that I showed that to you, and I'll get to it in a minute, but uh, just kind of hold that thought. How many of you, uh, how many of you think of your daily life as a battle? Now, some of you, uh, hear that question and the first thing you think of is, yeah, yeah, my relationship with my husband is a battle all the time. Or maybe, uh, yes, in my house, um, there's a war going on between me and my children 365 days a year. Or perhaps you're thinking of the office and you think, well, the, the petty politics that go on at my office is like living in a minefield. For some of you, for some of you, the battle that you wage, that you wage daily and that you see as the most determinative thing in your life is the battle that you wage against yourself. Now, I want to tell you that in this passage, the Apostle Paul once again shakes up our categories. In fact, he, he dramatically rearranges our categories. If we think that those Battles I just talked about are the ones that actually determine our well-being or our usefulness to God, that those are the battles that we need to really be concerned about. The Apostle Paul tells us we've been deceived. 
We've been duped into, into pursuing the wrong enemy. Inflatable tanks. And when we do that, when we, when we allow ourselves to be diverted by Satan's decoys, we, we set ourselves up for an ambush. Because we're not ready. We're not, we're not vigilant. We're not looking in the right place. Paul begins this passage in verse 10 with the word finally. And as, as S. Lewis Johnson said, Paul finally uses the word finally when he means finally. Paul is wrapping up this marvelous promise-filled and exhortation-filled letter beginning at chapter 6, verse 10. And he has been telling us in these last three chapters how we are to walk in a manner worthy of our exceedingly high calling in Christ. And our calling, as I've said before, our calling, Paul makes this very clear, our calling is not what we're supposed to do. Our calling is whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. Our commission is what we're supposed to do. And and our commission is grounded in our calling. The calling is the supply line, the promise, the extravagant, outrageous promises of God and riches of God. That's the basis upon which we do all that God requires us to do. Before Paul finishes out this letter, he wants us to know that as we strive to walk in a manner worthy of that marvelous calling, we will be opposed. He wants us to understand that when Jesus, when God brought us into union with Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone, we stepped into a war. And it's the longest war in the history of mankind. It's been going on since the Garden of Eden. And it will go on until the Lord Jesus returns. And every single day that you, if you're a child of God, every single day that you wake up, you wake up behind enemy lines. Because the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, temporarily, is Satan. And we have to live on his turf, day by day, under the curse. And do the things, live walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has handed to us. So there's a really, really important question that's implicit in these four verses, verses, chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, and that is, are you fighting the right enemy with the right weapons in the right way? Are you fighting the real enemy with the right weapons in the right way. Now next Sunday we'll look at the individual pieces of armor in verses 14 to 20. But this Sunday we're going to stay right here in, in verses 10 to, 10 to 13. And we're going to start with the real enemy. And this is so very important. Paul begins this section by giving us a dramatic contrast between the false enemy, the fake enemy, and the real enemy. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with who the enemy isn't. Paul says in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It would be absolutely impossible for me to overstate the life-changing importance of that one declaration, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time on that this morning. Now, some of you 
no matter what I say up here, are going to walk out of here and you're still not going to get it. Doesn't mean you won't ever get it, but some of you are going to walk out of here this morning and you're going to, you're going to say, yeah, I know. I've heard this a thousand times. Our battle is a spiritual battle. And yet you're going to leave and you're going to continue day by day to see people in your life as the enemy. You're going to see flesh and blood as those who control your well-being and your usefulness to God. I pray that that won't happen, but it seems uh, it, it it may be inevitable. But that's that part's God's problem. For some of you who are here this morning, the the flesh and blood that you have misidentified as your enemy is your own flesh and blood. Some of you are convinced that your struggle day by day is against your own messed up brain chemistry. You're convinced that your physiological tendency or predisposition to things like anxiety, depression, obsessive thinking, panic attacks, is that which actually controls whether it is well with you or not well with you. And and please hear me, I am not saying that nobody has those predispositions or those struggles. See, the brain was affected by the fall right along with the rest of this decaying body. And that takes a big toll and it has a huge effect on, on our lives. What I am saying is that that is not our enemy. Flesh and blood is not our enemy. And I can say that because Paul says it. He says it with crystal clarity, with no qualification, with no ambiguity. He says flesh and blood, that's not where our struggle is. For some of you, your struggle with those sorts of things has caused the optimistic faith that you had when you first came to believe in Jesus Christ to be replaced with the assumption that the outrageous wealth that Paul set before us in the first three chapters of this book really, really doesn't belong to you. It might belong to other people, but not to you. I would never presume to tell you or to be able to tell you where the the line between physical causes of whatever mental and emotional struggles you have and spiritual causes lies. I, I can't identify that line. But here's what I know. God does not lie. And when God says that every child whom He redeems, everyone whom He claims for Himself has been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, has been given the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ, has been given every single thing that is laid out for us in the first three chapters of this letter, and it is extravagant wealth. When God says that that wealth has been given to my children, that means if you're His child, that wealth belongs to you. And that power belongs to you. And we're going to talk a lot about the power that comes to us from God. See, your real enemy is not flesh and blood, not even your own. Your real enemy is the father of lies and the conspiracy of lies that come from the one who is bent on convincing you 
that your personal set of malfunctions has rendered the promises of God null and void for you. That lie and that liar is your enemy. The great reality here is that whatever your struggles are in the flesh, if you belong to Jesus through faith in Him alone, you have the very same Holy Spirit as the person sitting beside you that you think has it all together and doesn't. There is no possibility that the promises of God don't apply to you if you're His. And and you know what that means? That means you're supposed to be in the trenches with the rest of us. And if you're not, if you consider yourself to be exempt from being in the trenches, jump in the trenches. God has given me the very great encouragement of knowing believers in this room who struggle mightily with anxiety and depression, sometimes profoundly, yet who are very very faithful at pouring out upon their brothers and sisters the very same love that God has poured out on them. And they do it day after day after day, even when they are in the depths of the greatest depression that they know. And I've seen God mightily use these people in the lives of folks in this body, including in my life. I have been blessed with the great encouragement of knowing believers who struggle with mental illness. They are diagnosed with some pretty pretty severe, serious mental illness that would sideline many people in the general population from any meaningful participation in life, yet who faithfully share the gospel with every living, breathing human being that they come across and who have been used by God to bring many people into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because they've identified the enemy rightly. And they know it's not them. My brother Ken got up here and shared this morning that that the love of God, God says neither Death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And he pointed out that he's a created thing. I'm a created thing. I cannot separate myself from the love of God. You're not your enemy, beloved. Satan does not want you to figure out that flesh and blood is not where your struggle is. He doesn't want you to figure that out. He wants, he is doing everything that he can to convince you all the time that other people are your big problem. He wants you to believe that some human being in your life has gained control over your well-being. That somebody else is controlling your responses, your anger, perhaps even your righteousness. And He wants you to fear that other person or persons. He wants you to fear them. He wants to make sure that you never figure out that at the very worst, that other person 
to whom you've attributed the ability to wreck your life or to make your life. At worst, that other person is nothing more than a slave to the same tyranny that used to enslave you. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. That's what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, the believers, be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And listen to this. To malign no one. That that would eliminate a lot of Christian conversation, especially on Facebook. To malign no one. To be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? For we also once were foolish ourselves. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Spending our life in malice and envy. Hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. And that changed everything. And so, those other people, at the very worst, are simply enslaved to the same lie and to the same liar that used to enslave us. And so we're gentle with them. We're loving toward them. We seek their redemption. Not their destruction. Not their undoing. At the very worst, they're just slaves of the same tyrant. At the very best, at the very best, that other person to whom you have ascribed the ability to control your well-being, to wreck your life or make your life, is just another servant of the living God who's fighting the same real enemy that you are every day. Husbands, your wife is not your enemy and never will be. Wives, your husband is not your enemy. Your child, your parent, your sister, your roommate, your neighbor... The college professor who rails against Christ and Christianity, even Richard Dawkins himself, is not your enemy. Now, please understand me, that does not mean that many of them are not in the enemy camp. Most of humanity is in the enemy camp. And you know what? Most of them don't even know which side they're on. And God says, Jesus says, no matter who they are, bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus is our example. And He's the one who, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus is our example. And we are to love others, even when they despise us. And the power of that love is phenomenal. We're going to talk about an example of that in just a moment. Even if men despise you, mock you, revile you, persecute you, speak slanderous and false things about you to others, even if they kill you, you are to love them and pray for them and seek their redemption. You'll never be able or ready to do that if you are considering them to be the enemy the one who controls your well-being. So that needs to go. 
I had the great uh, privilege just a few weeks ago of uh, Debbie and I of attending a youth function from CBC where the keynote speaker, small setting at the Lopez's house, the keynote speaker was Virginia Prodan. Some of you know who she is. Many of you do. Her story's pretty amazing. She was uh, she was an attorney in Romania during the time of the, the reign of Nicolae Ceausescu, who was arguably the very worst of all the Soviet bloc dictators, the communist dictators. He was ruthless. He was tyrannical. He was brutal. He, he absolutely despised Christians and wanted them to die. I knew a young man who came to one of our camps before who his father, while his father was in prison for preaching the gospel in Romania, this 10-year-old boy was run over deliberately by a police car and then he was run over a second time and not a bone in his body was broken. Virginia Pradan, when she was a young woman, came to faith in Christ through the, the faithful witness of another Romanian pastor. And she was an attorney, and she started taking on cases representing Christians and Christian organizations, and she was winning them. She would go back to legal precedents and statutes that had existed long before the communists took over in Romania, and she would lay those out before the court, and the judges would scratch their head. They had never heard this stuff before, and they'd end up going her way. And she'll tell you that was purely the work of God. One day, a very large, she said he looked to her like he was about nine feet tall, very, very large, very athletic, very well-dressed man came to her office. And it was under the pretense of seeking legal counsel. And when he got into her office and the door was closed, he announced to her very calmly that he had been sent there to kill her. And he was about to do just that. And he was obviously waiting for her to cower in fear the way his victims typically did. But instead, she shared with him the good news of forgiveness from sins and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And she said, I never believed a human being could melt the way that man melted before my very eyes. He was, he collapsed in his chair sobbing. And he came to faith in Jesus. And in that instant, In that instant, that man was like the writer of this epistle who one day when he was on his way walking on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus to find some more Christians to arrest so he could bring them back to Jerusalem and have them executed was confronted by the resurrected Christ who blinded him so that he might see. The Apostle Paul named Saul at that point. Saul came to faith in Jesus that day. Irresistibly. And his life was never the same. And this man's life was never the same. And you know why? Because Virginia Pradan didn't treat him like the enemy. In fact, she treated him like he had nothing, that he was no threat to her at all. Because he really wasn't. He didn't control anything. He could have pulled the trigger on that gun and only God had control over whether a bullet struck Virginia Pradan, but that didn't happen. Guys, God is the only one who is sovereign over our well-being. 
that man ended up writing the last chapter of Virginia Prudent's autobiographical book called Saving My Assassin. I highly recommend the book. We need to know who our enemy is. We need to know who our enemy isn't. We need to know who our enemy is. And Paul tells us who our enemy is. Verse 11, he says, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There's your first clue. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, who's he talking about there? Well, he said it's not flesh and blood. He's talking about Satan and Satan's demons and the conspiracy of lies that they have propagated in this world for thousands of years. He's talking about the God-despising spirit of the ages in all of its manifestations. Our real enemy is Satan and the angels who abandoned God to be allied with him. God never commands you to love them. It's an interesting distinction. He commands you to love your enemies among men because they're really not the ones you have to worry about. He does not command you to love Satan. He does not command you to love demons. He commands you to do battle with them. They are highly organized. Their army is multifaceted. Highly, highly influential. There's rulers, powers, forces in the world, forces in the heavenlies. Satan has abundance of allies operating at every level in both the spiritual and the, and the earthly realm. He wields power over institutions of government, education, commerce, media, art, entertainment, you name it. His agents, including his human agents, employ every kind of earthly and temporary blessing and curse to mess with you, to lure you in, to devastate you, to make you angry and frustrated and bitter and thankless. But you know what they have absolutely no control over at all? every form of eternal blessing and curse. Satan and his demons have no moral boundaries. They have no compassion. They have no mercy. They have not one shred of guilt as they are working to destroy your family, your friendships, as they are attacking your children, as they are seeking to make a train wreck of your faith. And that is the highest and greatest goal that Satan has in your life if you belong to Christ, is to make a train wreck of your faith. He can't take you. He can't have you if you belong to Christ. But he sure wants to, he sure wants to derail you. And guys, he's had a whole lot of practice. Tens of billions of people over thousands of years before he ever got to you. So he knows what he's doing. 
There's nobody better at seduction or deception. There's nobody whose lies look more true. When Paul talks about the schemes of the devil in verse 11 and all the flaming arrows of the evil one in verse 16, he's talking about attacks that are more relentless, more brilliantly deceptive, more devastatingly destructive than anything that men will ever devise. He knows exactly how to turn your wife or your husband against you. He knows exactly what words to put into your mouth to do the very greatest possible damage in the shortest possible time to the people that are most important to you. You know how long it takes to destroy a marriage, a reputation, a ministry with nothing more than words? It takes seconds. And Satan knows that. He knows exactly what image to pop up in the corner of your computer display to get you to click away your delight in your wife, your effectiveness in ministry, and your walk with God. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the real one, your adversary, the devil, prowls about, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Does that sound like something we should take lightly? You do not want to go toe to toe with that lion in your own power. Because you'll lose. When you underestimate your enemy, you become a lion snack. And because our enemy is formidable and very well practiced, that means that we must be exceedingly well armed. And Paul leaves no doubt about God's provision in that regard. He's going to tell us here about the right weapons. The real enemy and the right weapons. Verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Throughout this epistle, throughout the Pauline letters, the phrase in the Lord always means the same thing. It means in, through, and by means of your union with Jesus Christ. That's where all of your resources found. And then he says, in the strength of His might. And that phrase ought to sound familiar because if you go back to chapter 1 to Paul's prayer in that chapter... Verses 18 and following. The third thing that Paul asked was that God would enlighten our eyes that we would know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. God's power toward us who believe. And then he said that power is in accordance with the strength of His might. Same phrase. Which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated him above every ruler, every authority, every power, every dominion, every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. And so he says, in the strength of his might, he says it there, he says it here, and then in both passages he talks about rulers and authorities. And you know, we should get the message. We should recognize that Paul's saying that the very, the very rulers and authorities in, in the heavenlies who constitute the real enemy, Jesus is sovereign over them. 
Jesus is absolutely sovereign over them. Even demons cannot resist the will of Christ. So where should we go if we've been assigned the task of doing battle with that enemy? We should go to the one who's sovereign over that enemy. That's what you call a no-brainer. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. And beloved, when he says put on the full armor of God, he doesn't mean the armor that comes from God. He means God's armor. God's armor. The armor that belongs to God. Paul's going to prove that next week. We're going to look at at what he says about the specific pieces of armor. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament, and we're going to see that all that armor belonged to Christ before it was ever handed to us. This principle that the armor, the panoplia, that word, by the way, we get it mixed up because we see the word armor and we think that's all defensive. No, the Greek word from which this is translated is panoplia, panoply. It means every bit of the defensive and offensive weaponry that a soldier carried about. Okay, And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we have weapons. They're not of the flesh. They're they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We've got weapons. But they're not visible. They're not of this earth. There's a great marvelous example of this uh, in the Bible that pretty much everybody who's heard anything about the Bible knows something about, and that is 1 Samuel 17, the David and Goliath passage. You had this teenage shepherd boy who was the youngest of eight brothers, apparently the smallest, and he heard that this this ten-foot-tall giant from the Philistine army was taunting the armies of the living God and he was saying, you guys send me anyone and I'll take them on and whoever wins, whoever wins, the other side has to bow down and be the servants from then on to the winning side. And nobody would go up and stand up against that giant. So this teenage boy, this teenage shepherd, David, he comes to King Saul and he says, I'll do it. And Saul, very reluctantly, after a conversation, agrees to let him do it. And Saul, Saul says, but you've got to wear my armor. And so Saul tries to put his armor on David. But the problem is Saul is head and shoulders taller than everybody else in the kingdom. And David's a runt. And so he tries to put the armor on, and you know what? It doesn't fit. It's useless. It actually is an encumbrance. It's of no value. And so David goes out into the field of battle, and he's standing... T- head-to-head with this giant, and all he's got is a sling and a few rocks. And he puts the first rock in his sling, and he winds it up, and he lets it go, and the first stone hits the giant in the head, and he's dead. And then David takes that giant's own sword and cuts his head off because he said, you taunted the armies of the living God. David had no physical army. He had no earthly armor, but you know what? He was armed to the teeth with the armor of God. And that's the very fight into which God has called every single one of us. And that is the armor that God has given to every single one of us. It's His armor. How did David avail himself of the power of God? He believed in the God of armies. He trusted Him. And he acted on that trust. That's how you and I do the same. We trust the God of armies 
and we act on that trust. The real enemy, the right weapons, and the right way to prosecute the battle. Three times in this passage, Paul tells us what the objective of our warfare is, and it's not what we are prone to think. He says, put on the full armor of God, verse 11, that you may, here's the purpose clause, the the goal, that you may be able to, what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil for our struggle. And then he tells us who the enemy is not, who the enemy is. And then he says again, verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And then as he begins to enumerate the specific items of armor, he says again, stand firm, therefore. So so what's our objective in the battle against the forces of Satan? Is it is it to storm his castle? Is it to slay his minions? Have fun with that. Is it to silence his agents on earth? There are a lot of Christians trying to do that. It's none of those things. It is to stand firm and resist. In Exodus chapter 14, when Israel was pinned between, on one side, the army of Pharaoh that was rapidly approaching, and on the other side, the Red Sea, what did Moses tell them to do? Did he tell them to pick up sand and throw it at the Egyptians because that's about all they had available? No. He said, he said, take your stand. Literally, take up your station. Plant your feet. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see them again forever. And that's exactly what happened. What part of the battle is assigned to us? To stand our ground. Don't run away. Don't be deceived. Don't be diverted. Be vigilant. Be armed. Stand firm. Resist. And if you think that's a wimpy assignment, you need to understand what God says happens with the enemy when we do it. James chapter 4 Verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will what? He'll run. He'll flee from you. That means the best offense against Satan is a really good defense. And who will do the vanquishing? Romans 16, 19, and 20 says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. In other words, stand firm and resist. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who will do the crushing? The God of peace. Under your feet. First Peter 5, 8 through 10, we already saw a little bit of this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And then he says, listen, but resist him firm in your faith. So what does it mean to stand firm? It means to be firm in your faith. In your trust in the God who vanquishes the enemy. Trust Him. Don't trust you. You're not going to make it happen. Trust Him and stand firm and resist. 
And then he says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's how the armies of God do battle when he's the one who fights the war. We stand firm. We resist the enticements of the enemy. We put on the strength of God to do so. We trust in him to vanquish the enemy. Now there's a lie. There is a pervasive lie that I want to touch on that has wreaked havoc in the church of Jesus Christ. And it is the lie that says there are certain sins that you can't resist. I have known so many men, young and old, who have said to me, I can't control my addiction to pornography. I've tried. It is of no use. I cannot do it. I've heard mothers say, I can't control my anger in dealing with my kids. I say things that should not be said. I've tried. I can't control it. There's no use. Beloved, for you to believe that God has not given you what you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling is to call God a liar. It's to believe a lie straight from the pit of hell. To believe a lie that denies the goodness of God and the power of God. To believe a lie that negates every promise that God has made to us in this great letter. And there's, you know what, there's only one solution if you're believing a lie. Stop believing the lie and start believing the truth. Some of you are saying, that sounds great, Tom, but I've tried to do that too, and I can't. And my answer to that is very simple. Some of you will say, if I resolve to do that, I'm doing it in the power of the flesh. But here's, here's my challenge to you. If it were true that you had not been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, if it were true that you had not had the lavish grace of God poured out upon you like a waterfall, then that argument would have some weight. But you have received the outrageous riches of Christ. And so when God says, which he says over and over in this letter, stop doing that. Chapter 4, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. That means stop doing it. Do not participate in the deeds of darkness. Because, why? Because you are children of light, so walk as light. Expose the darkness. Stop doing that and start walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Guys, I get, I get that we can't let the process of sanctification be about us operating in the flesh. But beloved, if we are so bent on parsing out the process of sanctification that we are not getting on with sanctification, we need to pay attention to the promises of God and lay claim to them. We need to do in the power of the Spirit that which the Spirit has enabled us to do and quit making excuses for sin. Brian Borgman, I listened to this a message of his I'm almost done. I listened to a message of his. It was the 17th message in a series of 17 messages on these verses. So you guys are lucky. And it was his recap, and it was marvelous. It's on monergism.com. I highly recommend it. 
He said this. He said, it is not because of lack that we fail. It is not because of lack that we fail. And I would, I would finish that out, and he would agree with this. It is because we have forfeited the fight to a lie. There's no answer but God's answer, and his answer to you is perfect. He says, walk no longer as unbelievers walk. You are of the light. Be a child of the light. You have been, Romans 6, you have been buried with Christ in the likeness of his his death. You have been raised up with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God and submit the members of your body as instruments of righteousness and, and slaves of God. Do it in the power that God has already lavished upon you. Don't make excuses for not being able to do it because that's a lie. Last thing, and this is short, and that is that this is corporate. This is corporate. See, and please hear me on this. The grand and ongoing conflict that Paul sets before us in this passage is not you on one side pitted against the forces of Satan on the other side. It's nothing like that. You know what it is? It's you, together with all the redeemed saints of God, equipped with the unfathomable riches of Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, having one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, with one head who is our one Lord, Jesus Christ, who has authority over everything in his creation, it is that pitted against the armies of Satan. And guess who's going to win? And you know what that means, beloved? That means that you and I don't do this alone. We do this together. It means that we stand firm and we resist the wiles of Satan together. And it means that you and I are responsible before God. We have this marvelous privilege to remind each other, to be in the trenches with each other, to be foxhole partners in this battle. And we need each other, beloved. We need Christ in one another. We stand firm together, not alone. We resist the wiles of Satan together, not alone. Loving Father, You alone make us stand. We depend on You utterly and absolutely. And Father, we count your promises to be true. Make us valiant warriors in the army of the living God. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.